my name is Eric, and I welcome you to our Black Gay Diaspora podcast, where we, as LGBTQ plus citizens, come together to inspire and educate each other on who we are and our respective countries and professions. Through topics and guest interviews, our Black Gay Diaspora podcast celebrates individuals making a difference. Loving who we love is not a choice. Being who we're meant to be can be. We are here. You are welcome. We are community. For this episode, we have the return of Gamal G. Tarawa, a British facilitator, speaker, and coach. I interviewed G earlier this year for episode 23. As founder, managing director, and lead facilitator of Purple Frog Connections, G travels the world working within the public and private sectors to create ways to bring moments alive through one-to-one or group coaching, thought-provoking workshops, and presentations, and blogging. On March 13th of this year, G shared the stage with British director Cherish Oteka to accept the award for Best British Short Film for the 2021 docudrama The Black Cop at the 2022 EE British Academy Film Awards, or as it's better known as the BAFTAs. The film chronicles G's life journey, which includes him being the UK's first Black openly gay police officer for London's Metropolitan Police Service. I'm thankful to G for encouraging us to remain in contact after our initial meeting. Since that time, I've discovered that he is a dynamically intelligent and candid individual, and that he has an infectious and wicked sense of humor. Words cannot fully capture what I'm learning from G professionally and personally. I am very grateful to him for returning to share with us his coming out story. Hey, G, and welcome. Eric, I was wondering who you were introducing there for a moment. (laughs) (laughs) All you. How are you? I'm good, my friend. I'm good. It's an interesting time over here in the UK at the moment, you know, because we've just lost the Queen. Yeah. And that whole ceremony, so I've been watching that on TV. That's been interesting. How's it been for you? There's a um, historian here called David Olushoga. He's written some really good books about Black British history and history in general. And he said that we're in a space where ancient history and modern times are now merging together you know with the incoming of a new monarch there's rituals that take place and a lot of these rituals before took place behind closed doors one of the ceremonies when the king is of ratified to be king so to speak Mm -hmm. has always been done in private and now it was done with tv cameras and broadcast around the world This is a question, I apologize in advance if it's being American and being Black American. How is it for somebody from an emotional standpoint for a Black person in the UK? Oh God, that's a difficult question to answer. There isn't a simple answer to that. There is so much tied up in that statement. Whether you're looking at it from the colonial perspective, there's legacy there with the British colonies For me personally, I just looked at her as somebody who has seen so much history and met so many people. When she got married, Mahatma Gandhi gave her a wedding present. That's how far back we go. Mm -hmm. When she came to the throne, Winston Churchill was the prime minister. All the presidents that have been in that space, good or bad, she has dedicated her life to the country. Being American, she's a cultural icon for us too, for different reasons. Like you said, she was a global presence, a global figure. So thank you again for that. 
How has your week been? How was your week? It was a very, very good week. God, you're asking me some deep questions. <laughs> this is not even the interview yet. As somebody who has your own company, are you able to take extended amounts of time from work? October is Black History Month in the UK. So at the moment, it's the busiest time of the year for me. So I get to do a lot of work. And what I try to do is I try to sort of like switch off from about the end of November till about early January. Okay. And just give myself that time just to sort of like rejuvenate. I want to do a retreat. Mm -hmm. I want to go somewhere where I get the opportunity to explore myself in a different way. There's a place in Lanzarote, which is just off the coast of Spain. And they do these uh, breathwork workshops. It teaches you how to breathe to release trauma. Oh. I just want to try to see what that feels like. I mentioned in the intro, your company, Purple Frog Connections. Can you give us kind of a recap of what that is? The tagline is creating space for courageous conversations to take place. And what I mean by that is when we're talking about issues of race, gender, sexual orientation or stuff like that, it sometimes it can be a very confrontational space. For me, it's about finding the compassion in those subjects. Mm. My job is to hold space so that people can work through the guilt, the shame, the defensiveness, the anger, the blame, the frustration, and get to the compassion. That's people from all sorts of backgrounds because we all come with baggage. Our baggage can stop us seeing or hearing other people. So the courageous conversation is about getting us to talk without the baggage and actually hear each other. I like compassion. I never would have put that together with those types of topics. It gave me a visual of laying down the weapons. Yeah, mentally and physically. Were you a public speaker before you started your own company? But it's, my friends are not surprised that I am, which is feedback in a way. I love being on stage. I think my first time of being on stage was when I was at school, and I think I was about six. And we did a school play, Goldilocks and the Three Bears. And I was the bowl of hot porridge. <laughs> and I just loved that I could make people laugh. And although I never really pursued it. And then after that, I worked with an uncle who was a magician in Nigeria. Uh -huh. I used to be his warm-up man. And my job was to get the audience energized so that he could come out and just say, hey, hey, ride that wave. Like a hype man. Yeah. It's a space that I've always felt comfortable in, but I never realized it. You know, I learned something a while back. If I'm going to go and do an event, it's not thinking about the energy in the room, but taking a step back to think about what energy am I going to bring into that room? How do I want to influence the energy in that room? Rather than what's the energy in that room going to do to me? I sort of think, what am I going to do to the energy in that room? When I go into spaces that I'm not familiar with, I think I put unconsciously an armor on or a defensiveness, but the way you worded, it's like, no, how can I contribute to this? Yeah, it's about being your authentic self in that space. I found, Eric, that vulnerability is a superpower. You know, when you're truly vulnerable, people can't harm you. I definitely 
feel I know that since knowing you and then meeting you in person for the listeners in July, I was able to come over to the UK for a couple of days and meeting you in person. And I mean, I know you're a public figure, but I really felt the awareness or saw how you affect people in a positive way. I would stand back like, oh my God, I feel like I have a presence of royalty here. You know, you would talk to people. I would see the joy and feel the joy of them whenever you would interact with them. Well, thank you, man. That's a nice thing to say. Thank you. Sometimes you don't see these things through your own eyes. You know, it's when you see them through other people's eyes that you think, wow, yeah. We know you as being the first openly Black gay cop on the UK London Metropolitan Police Force. Is that something that you envisioned for yourself when you started your career? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I can see that on the application form now. Yeah, why do you want this job? Because I want to be the first openly gay Black cop. <laughs> <laughs> No, 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 no. It was not remotely on my radar. In fact, when I joined the police, I wasn't even out. I was so far in the closet, I didn't even know where the closet was. Okay. So locked in a prison of now, I realize a prison of my own creation. And there's a prison that was born out of the fact that I think I grew up around very homophobic people that gave me the filter to not see the freedom of being myself. So no, I didn't join the police with that intention at all. All of that was purely by accident, not by design. How long had you been on the force before you publicly came out or came out at work? Probably about 10 years. But the first person I had to come out to was myself. That took almost two years. Something inside me was saying, if you're going to say this to other people, you need to be comfortable with it yourself first. Otherwise, if you're not comfortable with yourself, you will internalize the hate or the disgust or the anger or the frustration. But when you're comfortable with who you are, you're comfortable with that part of yourself, then it doesn't matter what people say to you because you've done your work. You've owned it. I had to learn to own my sexual orientation. And same thing with my color. I need to be comfortable with me first. The empowerment comes from you being comfortable with yourself first. I'm not afraid to say I am me. And that took two years. There was no grand plan to say, okay, I will come out on this day and I've made a chart and I've got an Excel spreadsheet that says by this time this will happen and this time this will. It just happened. The first day was I'd gone into work and I was working with this woman, Heather, mm-hmm. who was my line manager. And she was in a bit of a, a bit of a huff. Something had upset her over the weekend. She started talking about the issues she had with her boyfriend over the weekend. And then she turns to me and she goes, I suppose you don't have this problem. But how do you manage all the women you've got on the go? And I remember sitting at the desk and I looked up and I said, actually, I'm gay. Wow. <laughs> it just came out my mouth. And then I just stood up and I walked out the office. And there was a part of me inside going, what the hell did you just do? And then it was like, whoa, the world hasn't collapsed. And I got to the stairs and there was a guy coming up the stairs. He said, hey, gee, how you doing? I said, I've just come out the closet. I'm gay. And he goes, good on you, mate. And I was like, oh. 
And then I went to another guy's office and I walked in. He said, you want a cup of coffee? And I said, yeah, I've just come out the closet. I'm gay. <laughs> and he said, milk, sugar? I said, did you hear what I said? He goes, yeah, I heard what you said. And I'm asking you, do you want a cup of coffee? Wow, that's beautiful. I remember going to McDonald's and walking in. And it's like, yeah, I'll have a Big Mac, French fries, uh, strawberry milkshake. And I'm gay, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I could just see the guy like, oh, oh, OK. <laughs> <laughs> the more I said it, I just couldn't stop saying it. I had to say it to everybody. A couple of days after that, I was in a canteen at work. I was talking to a woman and she's also gay. And I was just telling her I've come out of the closet and everything. She sat there, she looked at me, she goes, would you like to do a speech at the gay pride rally? Wow, right away. Yeah, and I'm just like, okay, if I'm going to do this, let's do it. But then I knew that the potential for it to go in public means my family's going to know. I wanted to be the one to tell my family first. I think it was that week, my sister had come around to visit with my nephew and we were sitting in my living room talking. I said, by the way, I've got something to tell you. And I told her I was gay. The anger on her face and the disgust. But you know, when somebody's so annoyed, they can't even figure out what they're packing. It was just that thing, I, I need to get out of here. I need to get out of here. I need to get out of here. <laughs> it was almost like, why are you doing this to me? I then went round to my mum's house. I told my mum. She just got up and she just walked out the room. And then my nephew came in and said, Grandma said you've got to leave the house. Oh, wow. I had a cousin, Dean. And I think you've met Dean when you came over last time. So he had rang me the following morning or whatever. He was in the car. And he says, oh, my God. I said, what's that? He goes, there's these schoolgirls standing at the bus. He said, how can they come out the house dressed like that? It's scandalous, right? And I said, all right. I said, are there any boys with them? What are they wearing? Mm -hmm. And then he goes, why are you asking me that? And I said, Dean, I'm trying to tell you I'm gay. He just said, I'll call you back. And then he rang me back about midnight. And he goes, okay, I just got one question. I said, what's that? He goes, are you happy? And I said, yeah. He goes, good. That's all I'm concerned about. Good night. Oh, that's good. That wasn't good. Good is coming. <laughs> <laughs> and better is coming after good. I had a friend called Anthony. He gave the persona of being a bit hoodie. You know what I mean by that? Like street smart. Yeah. Yeah, really sort of like ghetto. Okay. What I learned about him, his father was a black professor. And his mother was a white Jehovah's Witness. His father hated white people. His mom hated black people. Interesting combination. <laughs> Very interesting combination. What I figured out with Tony was he had this incredible depth. He just lacked the vocabulary to express what he was feeling. He had a heart, really big heart. He came round to my house, sitting on the floor in front of me, and he was looking through my DVD collection, because we were going to watch a movie or something. And he had his back to me. And I said, Tony, I've got something to tell you. And I said, I'm gay. And he sat there with his back to me. It must have been minutes, but it felt like longer. 
And then he just stood up, turned around, looked at me, gave me a hug. And he said, I'm sorry if I've ever said anything homophobic to keep you in the closet. Every time I think about that moment, it was just so powerful. After doing the gay pride rally, my dad was around, but my dad was very ill. I chose not to tell my father because I felt that if I told him and he died, the family would blame me. Me telling him would have killed him. That's how it would have been interpreted. I did the gay pride rally. And after doing that rally, I was approached by the BBC. They wanted to do an interview with me. Uh-huh. Yeah, it was BBC Radio. And they came round to my house. It was going to be recorded over two nights. So it was on the Monday and on the Wednesday. And they came round on the Monday. And we recorded the first half of the interview. On the Tuesday, my father died. And then on the Wednesday morning, I came from a Muslim background family Mm -hmm. they were having prayers at my dad's house I went there early in the morning all the men were in one room and all the women were in another room and one of my uncles was leading the prayers and then after they finished all that he then turned around and said right let's have a conversation with you he said it to everybody but then he looked straight at me and said why aren't you married You are the only son of your father. What are you waiting for? Why don't you have kids? I remember sitting there like a rabbit in the headlights. To put it in context, my father used to batter me a lot when I was a kid. And there were a lot of people in that room who used to help my father to batter me. Some of them I hadn't seen since I was a kid. Even though I was a grown man, I still had this fear of them. When he asked me this question, There was this argument going on in my head. How are we going to deal with this? There was this inner dialogue just going on. And then it was almost as if my mouth decided it was going to take control. Suddenly my mouth just said, actually, I'm gay. And I remember looking at my mouth thinking, what the hell are you doing? And then all these voices just stopped in my head. And the room just went silent. And then... This tsunami of anger started building up in the room. It felt like I could feel it rolling across the floor towards me. What the hell are you saying? Your father's not even cold yet. And there's all this chowing. I felt it rolling towards me like a tsunami. Uh Eric, something incredible happened. It was like a glass shield just came up and just covered me. All this anger just got to the shield and just bounced off. I felt the most incredible peace. And I was looking at them and I was trying not to laugh. Okay. (laughs) It was almost like the fear had gone and I saw them as being petty bigots. I was like, oh my God, I can see your ignorance. They went from being these big ogres of fear to looking like little puppets. And they were like, we don't like the fucking game. Or Wizard of Oz or something. (laughs) And it taught me something. It reinforced for me that if I'm going to do this, I need to stop being afraid of my truth. Mm. I don't need to hide anymore. One of my uncles came in and he sort of like shut everyone down. And then he looked at me and said, come on, we're going. 
we went to the mosque to wash my father's body, which is the tradition. The imam of the mosque and my uncle were saying prayers of my body while we were washing him down. And then we wrapped him in this muslin cloth and carried him over and put him in the coffin. The guy went off to get the lid for the coffin. And my uncle was just standing to one side. And I suddenly felt this tear in my eye. And I bent over and I kissed him on the forehead. And then I just thought, I'm the last person to ever kiss my father. And my uncle looked at me and he goes, it's dusty in here, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and I thought to myself, no matter what anybody says, nobody can challenge me on this moment. It just gave me this thing that if I can survive this, I can survive anything. I should give you some space to ask a question, shouldn't I? <laughs> No, your visuals are, are really, really good. Oh, thank you. I remember my mum summoning me back to the house about a week or so after my dad had died. And she started reading these passages from the Quran to me, telling me that I should not be gay and you know, I should stop doing this nonsense. And then she goes, he goes, but I do love you. She looked at me as if to say, there you go, I've proved my point. And then I looked at her and I said, we're on different paths. That doesn't have the impact on me that you, you're hoping it will have. I know who I am now. And that's when I started doing interviews and things like that. And what I found is that when I share my story, when I'm open about it, it helps other people to find their own truths. From what I can understand, being gay was not ideal in your home, but for yourself, when did you become aware of same-sex attractions? I like the way you phrased that. There was a difference between being gay and same-sex attraction. I was aware that I had a same-sex attraction, but I didn't know it was gay. I was aware of that same-sex attraction from when I was about six, seven years old. I found men's private parts to be very interesting. I like that word. <laughs> <laughs> My first conscious sexual encounter, gay encounter, I was about 14. I was in a children's home and there was a guy there who was openly gay, which I thought was just absolutely crazy. I used to hate him for it and sneak into his room late at night. That need. Yeah do what I need to do and got out as quickly as possible and felt guilty about it afterwards. But I also felt that this will pass. I just need to find the right girl, the right kind of girl and, and everything will fall into place. No, that never happened. I can relate to that. <laughs> yeah. And not fully conscious of it, but conscious enough to say, well, I hear how the guys are talking about girls. Maybe I just need to meet the quote unquote right one, flip the switch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a quote by, I think it's Bayard Rustin. In fact, this is just after I came out. It was one of the things that empowered me. And I'm going to paraphrase it because I can't remember the exact quote, but I hope you'll get the message. And he said, I refuse to be part of the homophobia that kept me in the closet. If I was going to deny my sexual orientation, I was giving other people permission to do the same to me as well. That's just so powerful. But you did that when you came out to the, the woman at work. Mm. That whole day of these people that you came out to, those were clear examples of that. Or even 
of you coming out at your father's service. I asked this because it wasn't until after I came out that I started to acknowledge these crushes that I had on certain boys growing up, not calling them that myself, but looking back, that's what those were. Did you have those yourself? Oh, yeah. And they were very intense at that age. Very, very intense. I remember this particular guy. He was very huggy and touchy-feely. He was a bit older than me. You know, he used to hug me or hold me a lot. And I had this massive crush on him. Mm-hmm. And I remember one day he invited me around to his house, his apartment where he was living. I have two. <laughs> <laughs> Go on. <laughs> and I got round to his place and this woman was there and he said, oh, this is my girlfriend. And I was like, oh, okay. And he goes, yeah, do you want a beer? And he goes, I just thought you might like to meet my girlfriend and all this sort of stuff. And, and then him and his girlfriend started sort of like snogging on the room. Not fully, but just... In front of And me. you could see that both of them were very clearly in love. And every time she touched him, I could feel myself getting angrier and angrier. I remember feeling like I'd been cheated. You've brought me around here to tease me. That was the story I was telling myself. In fact, he was never gay. He was just one of those people that just is touchy-feely. I think there was that feeling of you just wanted affection and you didn't know where to get it from. Everybody else seemed to be having those moments of affection, except for me. Thank you for that. I'm aware that so many people focus on the act of sex when they talk about us, the LGBTQ plus community, but Mm. you've touched on that sexuality is so much more than the act of sex. It's the intimacy. It's the emotions. Very much so. I think as I get older, it's having someone to sit down and say, have you had your tablets yet? Or making a cup of tea or coffee just the way you like it. You go out with couples sometimes. There's strange food comes to the table and the other one says to the other one, do you think I like that? That's what it's about. It's those intimate moments. You weren't out as a gay man in your adolescence. So were you dating girls? Gosh, I lied a lot. There were a couple of girls that I went out with, but I never had sex with. To be honest, I was using them, you know, to let other people think that I've got a girlfriend. I remember one time I was at my uncle's place and I brought this girl back and we went upstairs to the bedroom and I just sat there just talking to her. She's sitting there thinking, right, when is this going to happen? And I'm thinking, well, how long do I give this for them to think downstairs that something's happened? There were girls who were my cover, my camouflage. Okay. The only time I ever had sex with a woman was in August 1977. And I remember it vividly because it was the year and the month that Elvis Presley died. I was in a children's home and there was this young girl who had a crush on me. What I remember about her, forgive me for being crude. I remember sort of like she took off her knickers, is that she had shaved her fanny. I know that means something different in the UK. Her vagina. Let me say that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 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 Lost in translation. Oh, he yes. was really gay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're going to go there. <laughs> exactly. If this is visual. I'm yeah, yeah. translated American English to British English. <laughs> Her vagina. Yeah, nothing happened. I don't know. I was 16. 16 at the time. 15. Sorry. 15. Life. You are someone 
in my opinion, does not present as, I hate to use it this way, but it's what it is, is you don't present as what is expected of a gay man or whatever the terminology is. Also, I would assume that most people would not guess you're gay and would assume you're straight. Societies created this image of what a gay person should be like, almost like a caricature or a stereotype. You have to be either camp or effeminate. There are gay rugby players, there are gay soldiers, there are gay police officers, there are gay bankers. You know, there isn't a stereotype of what a gay person should look like. Not every straight man should be butch and macho. We need to break out of these boxes. That's part of the journey to me when I do the work. Stop being who you've been told to be and start being who you can be. Mm, I love that. Take time to ask yourself, actually, who am I? What do I believe? What do I feel? How much of what I'm carrying is not mine to carry? One of those things is the expectation that you should act or think in a certain way because you're gay. Well, you touch on something, too, that masculinity in general, even for straight men, because when you talked about the friend who was very touchy-feely, definitely when I came out to myself and I started to be more public about it, I was confused for a while when I would meet men who were more affectionate, more physically demonstrative, because of this whole societal thing, oh, a real man is not that way, air quotes. I also used to have this thing back then as well, right? <laughs> it's amazing when you look at yourself. You know, if I meant to met someone, you're gay, I'm gay. We have to sleep together then. It's the law. I feel like some people assume that when they say, I have a friend I want you to meet. It's like, oh, dear. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When I first came out, I thought I better go to gay bars to meet other gay people. But I went to some bars and it was all about, should we have sex in the toilet? No. Ooh, no. Thank you for that. <laughs> attraction is not just same as a, a male female dynamic it's not oh you're a man you're a woman it's like well no i have to actually be attracted to you not every person just sleeps with every person everybody has their types exactly yeah, yeah. we've all got different tastes that's the beauty of it what was your perception of things after coming out when you started to become more aware of the sing? I've never really fitted in with the scene. I found it very challenging. Whether that challenging because there were still parts of myself I wasn't comfortable with. For example, I was not comfortable around camp men. In the early days, I was very judgmental towards them. But then I realized that actually it wasn't about them. They were showing me a part of me that made me feel guilty about myself. They were being overtly themselves. I didn't have that comfort. So you doing that is actually showing me how uncomfortable I am about myself. And therefore, I hate you for it. I had to get over that. I had to work through that. Going out to gay bars as well, you know, I didn't find that they were the place for me to connect with people. I came across a group called PACE which was a gay support group for black gay males in the UK, in London. I went along a couple of times, but it also showed me how much work I had done on myself. Where they were in their stage of development is that they still saw their sexual orientation as a burden. And they kind of pushed me away from the scene for a while. The friendship you and I have, where we could talk, it would be a real conversation. There was no agenda to the conversation. 
one of the things we don't do and why I like talking to you, Eric, is that there is no self-pity in our conversations. There's exploration, there's understanding, but there's no wallowing. There's no hippo time. Hippopotamus is wallowing in the mud. Hippo time. <laughs> I want to celebrate who I am. I want to be comfortable with who I am. And I get that I was in that space, but it's not a space that I like now. Hopefully what I like about what I'm doing now is I'm showing people you can be yourself. You can stand in your own spotlight. You can stand in your own power, your color and your gender. There was a question, I think it was, it was a bell hooks question. He said, do you see your color as a joy or a burden? Because whichever way you look at it, it would dictate the life you live. The first person you have to be comfortable with is yourself. That's where any empowerment comes from. And being comfortable with yourself doesn't mean you have to shout it out to everybody. No, it means you have to be comfortable with yourself. Since you've been out, both in your professional and your personal life, what positive changes or evolutions have you seen? What, in myself or in society? In society, yes. I just like the fact that as time goes on, people are more comfortable with their identity. But I feel sometimes we've got to be careful of not to over-identify ourselves to the extent that we exclude ourselves. The identity politics can be messy. You get to places where people expect you to know this is who I am. This is how I must be treated. What you're doing to others is what you don't want others to do to you. We don't all know everything. We have to see each other with compassion. Compassion is the power that brings us together. Don't judge someone because they don't understand your character or your personality or your sexual orientation. Judge them if they hate you for it, but don't judge them because they don't understand it. Mm -hmm. I remember working with a woman, a very senior police officer one day, and we were talking and we were on the way to a bar. And she says, gee, I really don't get this trans thing. I just don't understand it. I can't get my head around it. And I said to her, it's not yours to get your head around. All you have to do is appreciate it, that it belongs to other people. And she sort of stopped and she goes, that I can do. It's mm, a great way to put it. Yeah, the, a lot of the times we put pressure on people to understand. And what that does it puts people in a place where they're scared to say they don't understand. To me, the comfort is being in a space of knowing that you don't know and being open to learning what you need to know. You didn't use the word labels, but what I thought of is making things in some ways terminally unique. Mm. You know, I am so special. My experience is when I've been in that mindset, it can distance me from people. Yeah. I can't remember who said it, but it's like, I'm unique, just like everybody else. Ah, yeah, that's beautiful. To combine race and gender or sexual orientation, um, I know there's a lot of talk about homophobia, not permanently unique, but us as Black LGBTQ plus individuals, the realities of racism within the LGBT community. How do you work towards using compassion to combat that? Combat. 
I'm a compassionate soldier. <laughs> um, I can only speak for myself and what works for me and hope that, you know, it resonates with other people in some ways. And given the success of the way things are going at the moment, I would say it does. But I try and see the whole person. Uh, there's a lot of quotes I like. And another one is like, you know, nobody can make you feel inferior without your permission. I always remember Sidney Poitier also said, when he come up in the Hollywood days, where he was the only black guy, he said, it wasn't impossible, it was just harder. And there are times when life is going to be hard. Yes, in terms of race, but also in terms of sexual orientation, in terms of gender, in terms of economics. We're not all dealt with the same cards. And sometimes the cards are stacked against us. But that doesn't mean we can't rise because there are people out there doing it. And I'm not saying that these people are exceptional. Sometimes they've been given breaks that the rest of us haven't. But what I'm saying is it's about learning to do the best you can do with what you have. Whatever you do, do it to the best of your ability. The era that our parents grew up in is a lot different to the area we're in now. I don't know if you're aware, but last year, the English football team lost the Europe Cup. Yeah, I was there for that. Yeah. And the amount of racist abuse that was given to the players, Raheem Sterling and uh, Rashid. But what I liked about those two guys is that you don't impact on me. I know who I am. I know what I'm achieving. And I remember hearing them saying that in interviews, and I'm like, yes, you go. That's it. I, I remember going out to some of the Eastern European countries. Mm -hmm. Some of the places I went to to do work, for some of the people that I was the first black person they had ever seen outside of a book or a TV. I won't say what the country was because I don't want to embarrass them. But I remember going to this Eastern European country for a conference and we were walking around and the kids were coming up and shouting at me, what's up, my nigga? What's up, my nigga? But I can see why the music. That's the thing. Understand the why before you judge. Because they've been watching MTV and stuff like that. Yeah. Recognizing the difference between people being malicious and people just not understanding. Well, you've given proof of why you do what you do. I hear a lot of pausing. For yourself, you pause, which gives other people permission to pause and to ponder and to reflect and to think. When I interviewed you earlier this year, it was before the BAFTA Awards. You were up for the nomination, you and Sharice Oteka. I did see that clip when you got up on stage. How was it for you in that moment? And what have you learned from that experience that is carrying you forward? What have I learned? Or what am I still learning? The experience was, and still very much is, surreal. When we got there, we were sitting down. So many people have been saying to me, oh, you're weird. And I'm sorry, I don't want to hear this anymore. I'm not interested. There was a director of one of the other films nominated in our category. And he comes up and goes, oh, you're the black cop guy. We saw that film the other day. I said, oh, what did you think? And he goes, we've got no chance. And I remember them sitting down and then they read out the name. The winner is the black cop. And I remember Sherish and I just turned and we just stared at each other. It was like, did they just say that? And then somebody whispered, you need to get up on stage. If you watch the clip of the acceptance, 
Cherish was so in control. She was so calm. She was so relaxed. I'm standing behind her as she'd done her talk. People say it's like watching a play. I'm looking around this room and I'm seeing like Benedict Cumberbatch and I'm seeing Questlove and I'm seeing all these stars in the audience. And I'm on the stage. I'm on the stage in front of all these people. It was just so surreal. What it's done, it's expanded my awareness of what can be possible. I remember a couple of weeks after the BAFTAs, they had the Oscars. And I was sitting at home watching it. And I was like, a couple of weeks ago, I was in the same room as most of those people. I can get an Oscar. It was just a bizarre feeling. It's made me more open to possibilities. It shattered some of my self-limiting beliefs. It's also made me more confident in how I speak when I do my engagements, more truthful, more honest. I mean, for example, I talk now about what I've had to unlearn about racism. Mm -hmm. I had to unlearn the fact that if I talk, I have to soften my voice because I don't want people to think I'm being an aggressive black man. What I've learned in that process is that it's made me more clearer in what I say. How do I use that in a different way? I talk about the fact that I was taught to be subservient to white people. I've had to unlearn that. I've learned to own my space. But I've also learned not to use knowledge and experience as a weapon. To use it to open people up, not close people down. How can I say those difficult things about race in a way that you hear me rather than judge me? My opening line now, which means more than anything else, is that I know what I'm going to say, but only you know what you're going to hear. That is so true. Wow. Where can we see the documentary online? It's online on YouTube. I definitely recommend it to everyone. What I loved about it, and you touched on it just now, specifically as a Black person, or me as a Black person, is for me, it was uncomfortable because I won't give anything away, but the experiences that you shared in there, we've all experienced them on some level. Yeah. And one of the things I've heard, I'm given permission to have the conversation we don't have. Yeah, very much so. I was actually just talking to my aunt in Arizona recently about this. It's like, I told her, I said, you know, you really want these people in your life that really get you. But when you meet these people that really get you, it's kind of uncomfortable at the same time because you're like, I have nowhere to run. <laughs> and you have that and it's a gift and it's a beautiful thing. So I thank you for that and for your examples. I thank you for not running. <laughs> <laughs> so where can we find you online? But you can find me either at my Twitter account, Purple Wisdom, on my Facebook page, Purple Frog Connections, LinkedIn, Purple Frog Connections, or my website, www.purplefrog-connections.com. Again, I just thank you so much. And I feel like this is just another conversation of ours. It's just we have a mic in front of us. So. Mm. Thank you. Thank you for spending time with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, comment, and subscribe. Share with your friends, too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Our Black Gay Diaspora and on Twitter at BLK Gay Diaspora. 
Until next time.